Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest, we please welcome the author of Bombardiers, What to Do with the First 20 Million and What to Do with the Rest of Your Life, Paul Bronson here to West Coast Live. Well, thank you very much, and I'm, I'm sorry for the Trans Bay uh, adventure, kind of some extra trips today. Well, it's good to know exactly how many minutes away Freight and Salvage is from Bayfront, in case I ever have to do it again or do the reverse commute. Well, it wasn't too bad. I mean, although there were trucks being inspected on the bridge today, um, traffic seemed light, lighter than usual. It's a beautiful day. People are looking at this, looking at the sunshine and the blue skies and not bothering each other and not harassing each other on the road. So it was a no stress on my part to make it over here. It was nice listening. Oh, well, good. Well, I'm glad that you're, you're here and relaxed. You seemed a lot more relaxed than in the heyday of the dot-coms. Yeah, I came on your show a couple of times, and I used to be nervous. And um, I think that there was some tension between uh, who I was out there as an author in the media world and who I really was in my heart. Uh, and I think that I've reconciled that now. And so I've been uh, doing lots of touring for the last month. And I no longer feel like I'm meeting 200 strangers tonight. I feel like I'm meeting 200 friends. It's a very different feeling. And do they feel as friendly toward you? Yeah, the people, the people, uh, it's very nice feelings that are coming out of the ongoing conversation. My book is out, and it's in the bookstores, and it's selling really well, but it's not quite done. I know that sounds crazy, because it's printed, and I can hold it up for the audience here, but even at my bookstore events, I hand out other chapters that aren't yet in the book, because it's an ongoing conversation as I'm learning how people have answered this question in their lives. When you, uh, you, you once wrote a piece in the New York Times apologizing for being so enthusiastic about people quitting their regular jobs and going to the dot-com. Have, have people come up to you and said, uh, that's okay, you didn't have to apologize, or I really enjoyed the experience, or I found other things to do, don't worry about it? Very much so, but I have about a thousand emails that I've saved from people who read my books and got on a plane and moved here. And that's a that's a powerful experience because it means that your books aren't read in a vacuum that they're really affecting people in that way and I didn't apologize because everybody needed me to apologize nobody ever asked me to apologize I felt that the apology was a way of me moving on psychologically with the next phase of my life and I wanted to acknowledge that my books weren't read in a vacuum of course now I've written a book about people who changed their life. It's based on a thousand interviews and it's 50 stories of people who've changed their life. And so now I'm terribly afraid I'm going to have to write another apology, you know, three years from now for all the people who changed their life after reading my book and that it didn't work out. But well, in, in the book, you even have accounts where, where you're afraid to give people your opinion about their choices because you're afraid that they will take your advice. It won't work out. I mean, that, that, there's, a, uh, that there's a sense of responsibility you want to have by asking people this question that have people take all their own responsibility for their lives but there's a fear that they'll hold you responsible well I just didn't want to bear fault with false witness and I wanted to uh, tell stories of people who had changed their life but I wanted 
to do it in a way that was very honest to just how hard that was so that I didn't cast it with sort of a false hue. And so there's stories of people that have a lot of reluctance, and these are people who didn't have any money in the bank account, and it wasn't easy for them to change their life. And sometimes I look back and wondered even if they had done the right thing, though they all felt like they had grown as a person, and ultimately I think that's what was most important to them. What, what do you remember about uh, Chi Shang, uh, who's a 25-year-old school teacher at a private school in Massachusetts? He went to Yale, uh, and he chose over great parental pressure to become a teacher rather than to be a doctor or a lawyer in the new world as a, as a recent generation immigrant. Well, uh, he's at a public school, uh, not a private school, but it's a charter school, meaning it's chartered by the public school system. So it's sort of a specialty school. And his father, who lives in Fresno, is a doctor and disowned Chi when she told his father, I'm going to go off and be a school teacher. And Chi was living in a housing project and getting living off food stamps. And his father is a doctor in Fresno, a self-made man who arrived at Southern Illinois University 30 years ago with $75 in his pocket. And Chi, in a way, despite his father always telling him, do what's safe and make money and take care of the family, in a way, his father modeled this risk-taking behavior. You know, his father made a great journey in his life, and so Chi's now making a great journey in his I always wonder what was going to happen to Chi and to his father when his father read the book, because Chi tells me directly about his father, in effect, disowning him. And the nice thing to say is that over the holidays, Chi went home to Fresno, and he had bought an advanced copy of the book off eBay, and he laid the book down on the dinner table and showed it to his father, who scoffed and said, oh, I never put pressure on you, stormed out. And this is a man who really has forbidden Chi to talk about school teaching in the six years that he's done it. But he came back the next night and he put the book down and they talked about education reform for four and a half hours. So it's been a nice ongoing conversation that's occurred now that the book is out. The, uh, the book deals with, with people's fears, fears of moving on, fears of trying what they might want to, and you, and you intertwine that with your own fears of your own struggle of being a writer, of how you needed to overcome certain apprehensions uh, about yourself as well. And this, uh, this book seems to be as much about you as it does the, uh, the, uh, the people that you, you talk with, uh, that it was as much you answer, trying to answer this question. The book began, um, I, I'm, I just want the audience to know that Sedge doesn't know what I'm about to tell him at all, but in a way, I, I have to thank you for this book. And the book began a little over two years ago, I was writing for a TV show that was canceled to make way for Temptation Island. No, <laughs> no small ego blow there. And I was, I was out of work, and I could have just hustled up work, but I wasn't sure that I should. I had a baby on the way, my first, and I read a book that I'd been saving for years, Annie Lamott's Operating Instructions, and your show here... Uh, it always turned me on to Annie's books. I'd read them all and loved them, but that one I had saved for the day that I would finally make that journey myself. And I read it, and I so admired how a novelist, that she had taken this passage in life and made such a beautiful work of art out of it. It, it overwhelmed me, and, not, and, and it gave me courage that, boy, if she can do it, you know, we can do it too. And in a way, I thought, well, what passage in life can I write about? And 
rescue out of my unemployment i thought i'm asking what should i do with my life in a way i thought that's why people came to my books in the past and i would write about that and i was seeking guidance and courage in my own life how was i going to be a good father take care of my family and keep growing as a writer and i went out to record the stories of other people who had made this change in their life and shown some courage and so you're speaking of my reluctance to give them advice well I was learning the answer to this question, and I was learning what was the true story of my life rather than um, what was my resume or what were my accomplishments. And I think that I found, in a way, the, my true writing voice and sort of the authentic direction of my life because all these people rubbed off on me in a beautiful way. So if, if you found a thousand of these people and, and who are willing to, to tell their story and to be open in a way, I mean, this is not like a book where... The, the characters, the people are conflated into an imaginary John or Lisa. I mean, these are actual people you write about. Um, you had to drop 100, 850 or so, or 950 from, from your list. And what, was the, what were the criteria you used as you shaped the book to keep some stories in, to find other stories that didn't fit quite so well for your purpose? Well, because my previous books had been about the migration of young people to finance and technology, and that's the kind of people that I know. When I asked for stories, the first 250 I heard were former dot-comers who were now trying to figure the rest of their life out. And it grew from there. I knew that I wanted to be much more broader in expanse, and I wanted only a few of those stories in the book. And so I went down and found people in Hollywood who were leaving Hollywood and people in Washington, D.C., who from the Clinton administration who were in the middle of changing their life. And just from grassroots word of mouth, it spread. And I wanted kind of all walks of life, all ages, all classes. And I kept listening for those kinds of stories. So it actually wasn't that hard to knock down a 1,000 to maybe a 100. And then it was confusing how to go from a 100 to 50. And that's why I'm still handing out chapters at bookstore readings, because there's ones I only realize now how important that story is. For instance, you brought up Chi's story, which is been very helpful to people who've been pressured by their parents to go in a particular direction or to just pursue money or status. At bookstore events, a lot of people stand up and say, well, my parents never pressured me. In fact, they never gave me any direction whatsoever, and I have the opposite problem. And I've heard this enough that I realize, oh, I need a story like that in the book. So next month at bookstore readings, I'll be handing out a chapter like that. (laughs) When you... uh when you found the uh, the family that uh, the couple that wanted to uh, leave their their sort of day to day commute jobs and and uh, they were looking for uh, um, something to do and they they looked in a business newspaper they saw an ad nursery for sale uh, in the in the Pacific Northwest and they chose to take this on they didn't know anything about running a nursery they didn't they knew little about being their own business owner uh, but they chose to to do it anyway, and it was a, a process that was fraught with some anxiety for them, yet you seem to, s- to think that they made the transition fairly easily. It was a, they answered this question in a, in, a, in a good way for them. Compared to other people, uh, Ross and Nancy Latham made an easy transition. They, they borrowed the money from a bank. It was very scary for them to sort of sign their house onto the loan to support the nursery. It's a tree nursery in Snohomish Valley. 30 miles north of Seattle, um, and that they knew nothing about 
trees whatsoever, but they were told that they could train. And as risky as that sounds, that compared to other people's stories in the book, they actually had it easy for a year. But what isn't in the book is what's happened since then. Uh, when you own your own business, you have a responsibility. And one of their crane operators was killed one day when he was moving an 80-foot tree. And it was a real blow to this 25-person company. And they didn't know would they be able to survive that kind of a blow. And it's kind of a fantasy. Oh, I gave up my telecommute job, and I gave up, or I gave my job in telecommunications, and I own a nursery now. My life is great. Well, when you own something, there is a responsibility to it, and it's become much more now like the other stories in the book. Uh, it, they've she, they've grown as a people, and that's what's kind of important more than they've sort of found a necessary nirvana or some job that makes that gives them the perfect life. There's a um, I don't know if you watch The Sopranos. Oh, yeah. But, you know, but Tony Soprano seems to be a guy also kind of, what should I do with my life? You know, and, he's, and he spends a lot of time in therapy dealing with this and his anxieties. You know, and, and I mean, can you imagine what your experience would be if you were to interview him and ask him these questions? What, you know, and what he might do with the rest of his life if he chooses to leave his family life, if he can? Well, uh, that story is played out in The Sopranos. There's a story in my book, uh, the one of the only people whose name I had to change. And he's from Dallas and works in a county just north of Dallas, Collin County. And he was a oil prospector for many years. And then the next 15 years of his life are devoted to basically working on behalf of oil companies to dupe the environmentalists and make it look like they're cleaning up all their toxic waste sites when they're really not. And finally, betrayed by a friend, a sort of soprano Shakespearean thing, he flipped sides and he, in effect, turned traitor. And he's now an enforcer of environmental regulations in Collin County. And that very drama is played out on the Sopranos as uh, different people are turned and start to work for the feds. And the, I mean, Tony Soprano is like many of us. He's asking, what should I do with my life? But the real answer is, well, you're doing something, as much as we like him, you know, we're, you're doing something immoral. You're not living up to your moral responsibility to the world at large. And in our hearts, that's often why we're asking this question. And the right thing that he would go on to do would be to, uh, I think, go work for the feds or go become, after that, go become a cop somewhere and try to clean up some small streets in East Los Angeles. <laughs> Tony Soprano with a nightstick. There's a... Uh, but but the but also one of the one of the roles that's very important in these in these stories is the role of money either people's attitudes toward it whether they have enough whether they have too much whether they have not a little I mean how did you find was there a universal attitude about money how that was viewed as people were dealing with their lives Well people imagined that oh these people all change their life they must have a bunch of money and you must save a lot of money in order to be free and this was very popular notion during the internet boom, which is that it's like, oh, I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it for the freedom that I'll have once I have money. And I discovered that rarely did, unless you had just jillions, rarely was there ever enough to f make you free to change your life. And that it was hard times that forced people to change. And that true financial freedom comes from having the confidence that you can live within the means afforded by something you're passionate about. My brother is a nurse, and he works three 12-hour shifts a week. It doesn't pay him that much, 
But he knows nurses are in heavy, in heavy demand, and he's going to be able to do this sort of for a long time. And he has complete sort of not money never stresses him out. He doesn't have a lot of it. He hasn't doesn't have a little of it. He just but he knows it's going to be there, and those things are going to be taken care of. And that's financial freedom more than having two million dollars in the bank and then wondering when what will happen when it all runs out. The uh the next project, what is your next project? Is it a continuation of this? Uh, you, you, you're keeping stories and kind of updating your book through your website. Yeah, I'm working on this project at least for the next year and uh, growing the book, not really as a separate edition, but just growing the book. And uh, the book has made me a better listener to people, and I like how it's shaped me and uh, shaped my character. I have other projects, one called When I Learned What Family is All About, and another one called What I Did for Love, that I'm also sort of collecting people's stories on. The uh, This is just sort of a follow-up to one of our earlier interviews. Uh, I think when Bombardiers came out, you were giving people shares in your book. Um, <laughs> and if the book did well, people would profit by it. But, and I think you gave me a share, as I recall it. <laughs> Or it was a virtual share you gave me or something. What's it worth nowadays? Well, the, uh, you had to turn it in ah. <laughs> after a year to, be, to get your money. And at the time, it was worth $8. And uh, um, it was a, for every 10,000 copies sold, it was going to pay back a dollar or something. But uh, most people hung on to it because it was a nice little memento. It was a physical certificate that had my face on it. And... Uh, <laughs> I remember you came up to me at a party or something. You waved it around and, and, and wanted your money's worth, but you didn't want to give it up. I don't even remember holding it, but uh, you know, maybe it was that kind of a party. I don't know. <laughs> um, the, uh, the book is called What Should I Do With My Life? The True Story of People Who Answered the Ultimate Question is posed by Poe Bronson, and it's published in this country by Random House. Do you think this story would work in, in other countries, this question would work in other countries, or do you think this is a quintessentially American issue? We often think it's just an American issue, and I think it skews more commonly to America because we ask it often in our hearts out of a moral responsibility, and there's a lot of the people in the book grow into their sort of moral responsibility to their family and to the world at large rather than sort of selfishness. And we that's a thing that, and there's more of a need for that in America than there might be elsewhere. Um, but I've been written to by people all over the world, and I think it's not—it's uh, important not to overly focus on the demographics, because if anyone's asking this question, it's important to them. And uh, the book came out in England uh, last Thursday, and we'll see how it does there. I mean, it's doing tremendously well here, and we'll just see how it does there. But I will say that all my other books have been sold in up to 17 languages, and this one hasn't yet sold. So there's definitely a perception of people wondering, hmm, is this an American question or not? Well, this quality of self-examination, and publicly so, is not exactly an English trait, for instance. No, but many people throughout London and Manchester and Edinburgh will will say repeatedly we're we're all part of this uh, global demographic and we have cell phones and restaurants from all over the world and we're a huge metropolitan area with people who have immigrated from all over the world so we have more in common with San Francisco than we do with Yorkshire so uh, in the big cities it's still uh, quite quite a big issue Paul Bronson 
What should I do with my life? PaulBronson.com. Thank you very much for being on with us. Thank you, Sid. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.